This is On Location. I'm Joe Mamlin. Today's episode was recorded virtually on location at a recent NCO web talk. But first, On Location is produced by the NCO Communications Committee with support from committee co-chairs Robbie Endress and Judith Green, with special help from the podcast subcommittee chair, Tim Leitner. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public, among others. So subscribe on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. Today's episode, we feature a recent NCA web talk with Steve Eldred on the topic of leadership. Steve's a dynamic speaker. It's a great conversation with him and Tim Leitner. It's going to be a great show. So stick around. And we'll be right back. afternoon. Welcome to today's NCO Web Talk, Leadership Styles for Positive Outcomes. We have a great discussion for you today. If you have not heard Stephen Eldred present in the past, you're in for a treat. He is actually one of my favorite presenters. To get started, I'm going to introduce Tim Leitner. Tim uh, comes to us from Alaska Child Support Services Division. He's our moderator for today's event. Tim, Steve, welcome. Thanks for doing this today. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, we've got a real treat for you today. As, as uh, Gillian was talking about, Stephen Eldred is a fantastic speaker, fantastic energy, and really a great amount of passion for the child support community. And so I just want to introduce and give you some basics on Stephen. He is the director at the Orange County Department of Child Support Services. He's been in the title role of the 40 director, and he's also been an attorney and in administrative uh, roles in the past. His office remind you that his office for Orange County, uh, the Department of Child Support Services, was awarded with the 2019 NCA Program Awareness Award uh, that was presented at the Leadership Symposium this past fall in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we're still very, very proud of what Stephen and his uh, company, his uh, department takes and does. So without further ado, let me give you Stephen and Leadership Styles for Positive Outcomes. Well, good morning. I, I uh, welcome everybody who's on the phone with us today. This is great. Um, uh, Jillian said we have a record enrollment for this. Uh, so I'm glad to see you using your quarantine time wisely and uh, doing a little self-development. Uh, it's always a, a good way to spend your time. I'm going to go over the agenda here. Some presenters on these kind of topics, they talk about this is the one true way to do the job, right? If you follow this 
formula, this recipe, um, you will have success and you'll be a great leader or you'll have a good organization or whatever it is. And I, I don't approach it that way. Um, I'm different, well, in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> ask my, my wife. But I like the buffet style of education. And whether you're talking about how to use Excel or how to do leadership or how to make a cheeseburger, the best way is the way that works for you. So I will lay out a bunch of tools, a bunch of words, concepts, ideas. Um, I'll try to run through pros and cons, things that I've experienced uh, that worked for me. I will openly share places where I've stepped in it. Um, and if you don't know that phrase, talk to a farmer. Uh, they'll tell you what stepped in it means. Because I think through learning or sharing our mistakes and the places where we have made a, um, a mess up um, can really help other people. So I want you to make your own fresh, unique mistakes. Um, you shouldn't have to make mine all over again. Agenda. Oh, and please, please um, use the chat function to ask questions. Um, Tim is going to be uh, moderating those and looking for patterns and things. Um, we want this. If you're thinking of a question, if there's a gap in the presentation or, or an application, if you're thinking of it, trust me, so is someone else. Um, so do them a favor and, and uh, send the question up through the chat process. The agenda. Uh, we're going to spend what some people think is an inordinate amount of time defining success and talking about defining success. It really is the linchpin um, to leadership. If you don't know where you're going, um, then what do they say? Any road will get you there. Um, you'll, you'll be a hot mess. You, you have to define success and know what it looks like uh, so you can recognize it and work toward it. So we're going to talk about that. In keeping with my buffet style, uh, we're going to talk about types of leadership styles. Um, I'm, I'm cribbing, and I'll give full attribution, I'm cribbing some of this from an, an article in a book I read many, many years ago, um, but I find it illustrative uh, because each of these types of leadership styles that I discuss, you will recognize. Um, maybe it's the shift manager at Kentucky Fried Chicken when you were 16. Uh, maybe it's your current boss, uh, but you will recognize all of these styles, and, and hopefully you recognize yourself in, in some of that as well. For one example, and I'm going to do a little bit deeper dive, we're going to talk about strength-based leadership. Um, in our office, we have used the Clinton Strengths Finder model. I get no uh, kickback or royalty from having mentioned them. We just happen to use them. But any program or emphasis where you emphasize the individual and not turning out drones or generic workers um, is, is a good thing. Um, and so I want to talk about the value of treating people as individuals and, and the costs and benefits of doing that. And then lastly, I want to talk about building a positive environment. I'll give you some words, some phrases, some ideas or concepts for you to write down and play with. All of these are things that, that I've experienced and, and done and, and uh, had success with or made a mistake with. And so that's my point in, in sharing all this. When we talk about defining success, there is no silver bullet. You can't say, I'm going to write a book, and chapter one is going to say, this is how you define success. That is, this is intensely personal. Just like personal success, how do you define success in your life? Is it to have strong faith? Is it to make a lot of money? 
Is it to have a close family that, that communicates freely? Is it to be uh, successful in your field and achieve high rank? Um, that's very personal. And in the same way, organizational success is personal to the organization. So where is your team, if you're a team leader, where is your organization, if you're an organizational leader? Where are they on what I like to refer to as the maturity curve? Are they just getting started and it's just kind of a hot mess? Are they well-established with norms and culture and folklore and you're just tweaking something that's already working quite well? Keep that in context and stay fluid, stay on your toes as we go through this next hour talking about these because you're going to find yourself snapping back and forth between your small team and the larger organization and applying these principles and concepts to both. And that's appropriate. You should. If you come out of this hour saying, wow, that was a lot of information and I'm more confused than I was at the beginning of the hour, that's right. You should be. That, that's a good thing. Don't, don't feel bad about it. So when you define success, and I say, boy, as a team, as an organization, in, in my role as a, a director for the past 12 years, I've had the uh, extreme pleasure of leading wonderful professionals in, in this. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about defining success. Before I can define success, I like to go through a values review. By that, you say, what do we want this organization to value? Uh, what's important to us? Um, it, it's kind of lay in the grass and look at the clouds kind of a conversation. And if you have those task-driven agenda types, um, they will go crazy during this conversation because it's so conceptual. Um, but I, I'm a huge believer in it. We believe in treating people well. We believe in you know, putting the customer first. We believe in achieving cost efficiency. We believe in whatever it is. And, and, and I'm not even going to bother going too deep into it because it can be anything you want it to be. But it shouldn't be something that you do a value statement as part of your 10-year strategic plan, put it up on the wall, and ignore it. You, you should use this and make it dynamic. So all of during this hour, we'll talk about, think about, is this true to my values? If we did a values exercise and we came back to it, would this decision, would this approach, would this style be consistent with our values and do ongoing values checks? I've talked to so many people in different organizations who find that very helpful um, to uh, whether you call it returning to your true north um, or being true to your way of living, your leadership philosophy. Um, I use values, whatever it is, know where you're going. So when you look at that defining success, what are your goals? And, and this is not Sadly to say, you can't set these independent of the outside world. You have internal and external pressures that are driving this, and you have to inventory those. Does your boss care about your numbers? Is that all your boss cares about is your numbers? Um, do you have some free time? Do you have some running room or can you play with things? Are they demanding short-term return on investment? Uh, it's one of the... the uh, notice is that 30 years ago, the average Fortune 500 CEO would stay in the job for about eight to nine years. Um, by the early 2000s, that had dropped to two and a half to three years. We see the change in corporate behavior the same way. 
as they shorten CEO tenure, uh, they also shortened their, their return on investment strategy. Nobody made a long-term investment because the CEO knew for me to make my quarterly dividend and get my quarterly bonus, I have to get quarterly numbers up. Um, and they weren't interested in building for the future. So you hear where that concept goes. You have to define success. How much in the short term versus the long term um, am I going to emphasize? You may have external pressures. Um, you come in after a real hot mess of a leader who has made a total shambles of the unit and the uh, governing board, whether it's your administrative officer, your HHS secretary, your board of supervisors is saying, get this show back on track. And I mean now. And so for the first six or 12 months, you are emphasizing short-term return on investment just to show that you are nimble enough to dance. And that gives you a little breathing room. And now you can build a longer term. I just use that as an example. So defining success, and you should be taking a lot of time on this. Are you measuring performance or volume of work done? Wow, those are two separate things. You could proudly put in your monthly, weekly report, your monthly report, your annual report. We processed 426 widgets this year. That's a 7% increase over last year. Yay for us. Or you can say, in our business of child support or human services, we assisted in alleviating poverty in our geographical area. Okay, what's the difference between that? It is real easy to measure case openings, uh, widgets, number of hearings held. Um, and so since it's so easy, it's very tempting to define success that way. But does it approach social good? And you could say, hey, I want to alleviate poverty and make children happier in my community. The problem with that is you have no way to measure that, or it's extremely difficult to measure it. So is that a good success goal for there? So look at your measurements, figure out what your, whether you want to do it in sales or, or performance or things like that. I've said this in an open enough forum. I can say it to you. Um, I particularly don't get wound up about the five federal performance measures. Um, I don't find that that's helpful to me. The challenge of it is that I don't want to be playing baseball by staring at the scoreboard. That's annoying, right? So I don't want to do that. Okay, leadership styles. How do I get where I want to go? If I have an idea of success and what that looks like, it's a house with a picket fence and I have two dogs and a cat and flowers in the front yard. That's what success looks like. I'm ready. How do I get there? And as I said, this is a buffet. I'm going to offer a lot of different things and you pick and choose from what you find valuable. I tripped over this a couple of years ago, and I found it particularly helpful, um, and I'll explain why. Before you panic, I am not suggesting that you become Army officers in 1948. Um, they had really good uniforms that back then, better than the ones we have now, but <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that. What I am pointing out is that tripping over these, and there were actually, I think, 10 or 12, I, I just used five, the 1948 Army Leadership Principles, number one, know yourself and seek self-improvement. Yeah, be self-aware, try to improve who you are and how you lead. Seems easy. Be tactically and technically proficient. Just big Army words for know your job. Seek responsibility and take responsibility for your actions. 
okay. I mean, that sounds like just being part of being a grown up, but okay, that's a leader thing. Set the example, know your people and look out for their welfare. Now, the reason I include this slide is just to point out that this is something very, very different from the business we're in. And it is, goodness, 70 years ago, 72 years ago, long time. And yet these are timeless. So many of these leadership principles, they're not what's hot this week. That's where hairstyles come in and hair color, if we could get our hair colored or, or styled this, this year. Those that kind of things are trendy. Leadership principles are not. They are, they are timeless, and so they're not going to change all the time. So let's dive into some of those styles. This, and I'll, I'll give attribution here, is from actually a book. I read it in a... In a Harvard Business Review article, probably 2005, 2006, called Primal Leadership, Learning to Lead with Emotional Intelligence. Daniel Goleman came up with that whole concept of emotional intelligence probably in the mid-90s, if memory serves, um, and looked at all these different styles. Rather than rewriting this, I found his work so, or the team's work so compelling, I just use it and, and give attribution. First style, and these are not in any kind of an order. They're just various styles. And like I said, this may remind you of the Kentucky Fried Chicken boss when you were 16. It may remind you of yourself or any other boss in between. The first one I want to talk about is coercive leader. This is the person who uses either positive or negative coercion. Um, coercion doesn't have to be bad, right? If we hit our call center stats for this week, I'll buy you a pizza. Okay, we've, we've seen that. That's a positive reinforcement thing. We all want pizza. Um, or negative. Uh, if you've seen the wonderful stage play that was made into a movie, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, uh, it has to do with a boiler room. That is a, a small room with panicked and overstressed salespeople trying to sell, I think it's vacation properties on a lake. Um, and they're working their phone leads and doing this. Um, Alec Baldwin plays a, the most wonderful evil character you've ever seen. And he comes in and says, you know, rude and awful things like coffee is for closers, uh, that if you're not selling, you don't get coffee. And whoever's last on this week's list gets fired. Okay, there's benefits to this. You know exactly what's expected of you. In that case, you either sell or get fired. Um, in the other case, you either answer a lot of phone calls or, and, and if you do, you get pizza. The clarity of the expectation is nice. That's a positive. The difficult is once you bribe people with pizza or threaten them, you'll never get trust again. Uh, because the following week, you say, let's just answer lots of phone calls for the fun of it. And it's be very common for humans to say, but, but, but where's my pizza? Um, on the contrary, if you have watched five of your coworkers be fired for low production, you're terrified, even if the boss says, no, no, I've gotten rid of that, I've turned over a new lease. You'll never trust that boss again. So you may need to go there in the short term or for unique circumstances, but be extremely careful because you can't go back from it. Secondly is the authoritative leader. Here's one. This person is the expert, the recognized expert. They wrote the book. Everyone knows about them. They're sought after as an expert from around the country. They clearly describe their expertise-based vision. This is the way I got to the big show, and this is how we're going to stay here. It reduces confusion, 
and everybody knows what's expected. Just do it exactly the way we've always done it, and you'll be fine. In the 1950s, there was an admiral in the Navy named Hyman Rickover. Uh, if if you, I have any sailors in the group, they will know that name because a, a nasty chill just went down their spine. Hyman Rickover was the father of the nuclear Navy, and more to the point, the father of the nuclear submarine Navy. No one got a job on a submarine after about 1954 unless Hyman Rickover himself interviewed them. And he was known as a class A jerk, just an awful, awful experience. Jimmy Carter, who was a submariner uh, during that period, had to uh, interview with, with Rickover and said it was the worst time of his life, was that half hour interview or something. The thing is, you're running nuclear reactors one mile below the ocean. There is zero room for error. It has to be perfect. It has to be right. And Hyman Rickover was the smartest guy in nuclear reactors and submarines to have ever walked the planet. So that was a wonderful thing. What's the downside? No one ever walked into Hyman Rickover's office and said, uh, good morning, Admiral. I have an idea. <laughs> Why would you ever do that? That's terrible. Um, they would, well, in this case, Admiral Rickover would bite your head off. Um, but secondly, no, I'm the expert. How dare you? Okay, when I was running through this with my wife, she said, Stephen, no one knows about the nuclear Navy, and they're sure as heck not going to know Hyman Rickover. You have to have a better example of this. So here's the deal. You hire Alex Rodriguez, better known as A-Rod, also known as J-Lo's husband, as your batting coach for your baseball team, whether it's Little League or, or Major League Baseball. You hire A-Rod to be the batting coach. Who is going to walk up to A-Rod and say, Mr. Rodriguez, sir, I think you're wrong about my approach to batting. You see the point, never gonna happen. Okay, and if, you're, if my Rickover example worked for you, send me a note in chat just so I can tell you, my wife, that somebody uh, identified with that. The affiliative leader, okay, big word, what does that mean? They're trying to get a, a group. Think of television sitcoms. You have a lot of different characters. I think of WKRP, but you could think of Friends. You could think of um, The Simpsons. I don't know. Any of these group ensemble casts. And in that group, you've got at least one knucklehead. Okay, I'll, I'll go with one if, if those don't uh, resonate. Um, Scooby-Doo, right? Shaggy was a hot mess. Everybody tolerated him being a hot mess because uh, that's what made the show work. The affiliative leader wants us to be a family, uh, very big on the potluck and looking out for each other. And if your spouse is sick, they will bake lasagna for you and bring it over to your house. This is great. Inclusive environment. Everybody feels very belonged and, and, and a, a part of a team. But what happens in every single one of those television sitcoms? The knucklehead is never held to account. Nobody ever says, knucklehead, you've got to get better um, if you're going to be part of this team or we're going to, well, to use another television, we're going to boat you off the island, right? Friends never told one of the friends, you're annoying. Um, you're not invited to the party anymore. And that's the problem with the affiliative leader. Do they tolerate mediocrity in, this, in the higher goal of having a team dynamic? So be careful that you don't slip into that as you develop relationships within a team. The next one is the democratic leader. This one, consensus. We all have to agree or we don't go forward. Trust and commitment are the hallmarks. Okay, we got it. 
The problem is you can't have a crisis response. If you need to move quickly and the team is used to having a vote and absolute vetoes on every single thing that happens, then when you as the boss come in and say, look, I didn't have time. I had to make a call. I told the state, this is the, uh, our position. This is what we're going to do. And all of a sudden, everybody's cranky at you. You didn't intend that. But that's what happens. So if you want to be democratic, that's a wonderful thing. Get consensus where possible. But also know that sometimes you cannot. And the team has to appreciate that when you can, you will. When you can't, you won't. So, and, and that they respect you for that. The next one is the pace setter. I, I use an example here. You may or may not be familiar with uh, Lieutenant General uh, David Petraeus um, had a big part to do in the Iraq war, later ran into some legal troubles, but was a very, very well-respected uh, soldier. Um, he had a PhD from Princeton, um, extremely sharp guy, um, very, very high physical standards. He has a weak spot. I don't know if, if too many people know about it, but he loves Pop-Tarts. You wouldn't expect that from a Princeton PhD, but that's his favorite food. But he was the warrior king. He, he was so smart. He was a Spartan. He was so smart and so physically uh, thing that he really set the bar for everything uh, to do with soldiering. When he wanted to interview people to be on his staff, he would say, meet me at 0600 at the gym and we'll go for a run. And he would set a demanding pace for, let's say, a five-mile run. One mile into the run, he would start the interview for the job. And if you couldn't keep up with Dave Petraeus's running pace while thinking coherently, answering complete sentences without panicking or getting out of breath, um, then you could be on his team. Extremely high standards. He had a great crew. I mean, hey, if you pass that standard, you must be wonderful. The problem was that leaders like that, and this, I'm varying away from my example of Mr. Petraeus, they have trouble trusting or delegating. They have such high standards that to hand off responsibility to another person makes them crazy. Uh, very, very challenging. And, and so that's a problem with, with that style. So we're, if you are the expert, be careful about being the expert too much. It's okay to say, boy, in my day, I did this but I have not kept up in the new generation of people. They're so much smarter or they know the technique better. Show some humility and some self-awareness so that people don't defer or deflect to your expertise. The final uh, style um, is the coach. Um, it's not hard to see. This is, happens to be my preferred model. You recognize talent and you develop people as individuals, not as caseworker number 26. You, you offer that personal development training. You say, hey, I have faith in you. I think you should step up and take this challenging assignment. Um, I want to uh, get you to where you want to go, uh, whether career-wise or whether it be means becoming an expert in this field or promoting into a new leadership role. And so they bring out the best in individuals, just like your athletic coach does or your piano teacher or, or your, your, your dance instructor. It takes a long time. It's a resource investment. It's a long-term view, but it pays off for organizational health. What are the challenges of that? Well, coaches um, sometimes, and with harken back to your high school sports days, boy, the coach spent a lot of time with that person who was going to go to university on scholarship. The rest of us, they said, yeah, go hit the gym and then hit the showers because I'm working with Jimmy or Betsy or whoever. Be careful that you're not playing favorites and that's destroying 
the team harmony of what you've got going. The other challenge that you have is accountability. If you say, hey, our approach is very supportive and I want you to be successful and you're going to fail and you're going to strike out sometimes or miss that three pointer, but it's okay, I want you to try and stretch and fail occasionally. Well, what's the difference between failing at hitting a three point shot and failing because you didn't put in the time in practice? You have to hold people accountable for, hey, you, you have to do the work. It's okay if you don't understand a concept and you have to redo your draft four times. I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with your being lazy or missing deadlines. So how do you balance those two things? And I'll tell you from my personal experience, that's been a challenge. Leader priorities. Um, this is an idea that I've, I've seen for, for 15 years or something that the concept of you, you need to accomplish your mission and, and you need to do that. And we've all worked in that environment where someone says, yeah, I believe in staff development or leader development. Um, and we do that uh, regularly uh, once a year when we hit our quota and we have some downtime. If you find that you're working on leader development or coaching only on Friday afternoon at four o'clock when all the work is done, then you're doing it wrong. And you're showing a priority that that is the last thing on your menu uh, that comes and boy, your staff will certainly recognize that. I love the comparison, the people who say spend 40% of your time, and that's, yes, it's a completely arbitrary number, there's no science behind it. 40% of your time should be spent on leader or staff development. And you say, Steve, you're crazy. There's no way I can block out 40% of my time for leader development and accomplish mission. And that's where you'd get an argument from me. I mean, it would be polite, I'm a, I'm a polite guy, but you would get an argument from me because if you block out 40% of your time, you say Wednesday after two o'clock for the rest of the week, we're doing training. And the first part of the week we do mission, then you will fail, uh, probably at both actually. You have to find a way to incorporate both at the same time. If you're doing leader development to achieve mission success, you can and will be successful. Okay, what do I mean by that? Remember earlier I talked about knowing individual team members as individuals, not as deputy director number three or caseworker number 26, but Helen and Bob and Jasmine and whoever they are, you know them as individuals and their whole self. And, and more to the point, you're encouraging them to bring their whole experience to work with them. That does not mean their children and their pets. Don't get me wrong. It means if you've had prior lives with other jobs where you have been creative, you've, you've worked things, uh, maybe you have dreams and, and success way beyond this organization, then bring all of that and value all of that with the person who brings it. Where am I going? All right. Helen wants, and I will screw up all these names because I'm not writing them down. Helen wants to be a graphic designer. In her break time and lunch, she's always doing pencil sketches of either the flowers on her desk or her teammates. And wow, she is so talented. She says, someday I wanna do murals on the sides of buildings. That's my dream, that's what I wanna do. But for now, I am doing child support order establishment, Monday through Friday, eight to five. But I really wanna be a graphic designer because I have an artistic creative side. Bill is so organized, he drives people a little crazy. They think that he must iron his socks before putting them away in the drawer. He's just that guy. 
He walks past your desk and arranges your pencils so they're in order by length and color, pours out the M&Ms on the table and arranges them by color and then by number so that they're all in order and then eats one color at a time to maintain that structure. And if you recognize yourself in any of these descriptions, go ahead and laugh, no one can see you. And someone else, they, they just have a gift for public speaking. It wasn't natural, but they've gone to Toastmasters and they're developing it and they're working on it and they want to learn communication as, as a, a strength. You get a, uh, an assignment handed down from higher headquarters and they say, you need to achieve this project. And you have to work a list and then work with your stakeholders and other people and to do it. And you say, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to do that because all of the team's evals are due this week and my daughter has a dentist appointment on Thursday and I just don't have enough time in the week. All right, well, wait a minute. You need to get something organized. You need a project plan. Well, then I'm going to go to Bob. He's Mr. Organized. He's Mr. Obsessive Compulsive. And you say, Bob, I need a project plan. Set us up a template. Get me an Excel spreadsheet. Get me a Gantt chart with reverse engineered uh, deadlines of what we need to accomplish by what date to achieve mission by the due date. You go to your graphic designer and you say, let's be creative on all of the different ways that we might do this. We can do it alphabetically. We can do it by numbers. We can do it by this and let them free to challenge different ways of accomplishing that mission. The third mission, you have to uh, uh, work uh, with stakeholders. You have to communicate. So you go to your communicator and you say, I need a plan from you. And it may be just one page. I need a plan on how we're going to engage stakeholders and when and how often and what it's going to look like and all that. Work with the designer to make an infographic, blah, blah, blah. And that last member on your team is somebody who wants to promote. And you say, okay, Fred, you want to promote? You're in charge of this project. Here are the right and left lane limits. Here are the people that I encourage you to leverage for their particular unique talents, and you're in charge of this. All of that is leader development. All of it is accomplishing mission. You're stretching, you're coaching, you're, you're guiding from the rear kind of a thing, but allowing them to meet their own personal success goals and hitting mission success. That's how you do mission and leader development at the same time. Not every assignment is gonna lend itself to that, but stay attuned for the opportunities to do it. Sometimes you'll only be developing one person at a time on their personal success goal. That's okay. It, it doesn't always end up pretty where how many people did I have? Four or five different people achieving their personal success on one project. It, it's not always that, that tidy, but I think you can do it if you're looking for the opportunities and you jump on the opportunities when they're there. When I talk about leader priorities, one of the things that I have come to find is, is really important is that you can't assume that somebody who is a supervisor in your office, a manager one, a manager two, a lead uh, deputy, whatever you call your, your employees, if they have that rank on their shoulder, they must have the following skills, one through five. And I found that's absolutely not true. If you want that to be true, and I think it's fair to say, if you work in this organization, this is what I expect of an analyst, that an analyst will be able to do A, B, and C. Then make it very clear what those expectations are, and then provide the resources or education or support necessary to get not only the person in that position to that high level, but also any potential candidates 
that want to get to that level, you're offering them training opportunities so that they can get there. All right, uh, I don't wanna lose people. What, is, what are the examples that I'm talking about here? I, I just off the top of my head, I'll throw out a few here. I like measurement. I, I kind of live for metrics. How many, what percentage, what's the scope of the problem? What, uh, how many cases are we talking about? Those kind of phrases roll off. Anybody who works near me knows if you don't give Steve numbers, he's gonna pester you, right? He doesn't need exact numbers, estimates are okay, but you gotta give him some sense of how big of a problem is this. So I really like that. So everybody who's in a leadership or analysis position in my organization knows that's a given. They also know I'm visual, so if you give me three pages of single space typed prose, I won't read it. If you give me a graph, you have my attention. So, uh, but, but that's the thing. My people know that that's what's expected of me. Your people may know you don't like complete sentences, you like bullet points. Um, you like read aheads, whatever it is, but you have to be clear about those expectations. Quality control, here's one. Hey, in, in my organization, it's expected that every leader will have a quality control function for their team. I never dictate what that is. I don't say from, from the top floor of my building, hey, this is the chosen quality control method for your area, because that's taking away the agency and the authority of that uh, subordinate leader. No, they know the work, they're closest to it, so they have to come up with a quality control method. Maybe it's picking out one out of every five products delivered and going over it. Maybe it's reviewing every call agent three phone calls a week, they listen to the recordings and they go over it with the call agent simultaneously. It doesn't matter what it is, but is quality control something you have? So um, communicate those standards. They have to know what you're holding them to. You can say, I, you don't have to be great at any of these things, but you gotta have no grade lower than a B, right? I mean, that's kind of what you tell your high schoolers. We'd rather not have Cs. Um, no grade lower than a B. You can be the greatest uh, at metrics and analysis, and you're not so good at writing. That's okay. Find somebody to, to ghostwrite for you. And, and that, you, hey, you're developing a leader while you're you know, shadowing your ghostwriter. So um, go from there. I hope that makes some kind of sense. As I said, uh, I'm, I'm not shilling for a company. There's no royalties involved. We've been using this for 12 years and, and have found great success with it. The point is not this particular tool. The point is the value of treating individuals as individuals, not as drones. Um, I've been in the Army 23 years. We all wear the same color of multicolor green pajamas. Um, we are not individuals. We are members of a formation. Um, I can tell you the difference. And the difference is when you're treated like an individual, you respond so much better and you want to come to work. So there you go. This particular one, uh, you, you do an online test, you say, would you rather walk on the beach or eat a ham sandwich and all these questions, and then they give you your top five most prominent strengths. You can, in this particular company, ask for all 34 and they'll do that for you. It gives you an insight into your strengths, what you are best at. So there's the 34, uh, you can see them in your slide deck later. And the value of this is not you finding out about yourself. If you are surprised by your strength, you are incredibly unself-aware uh, and you probably need more uh, than just this. 
everybody takes this and they go, duh, what was the value of that exercise? I know who I am. This just gives you a little context. No, the real value of this is looking at your coworkers' strengths. And when you read the paragraph on what they're good at and the paragraph on what they find challenging, your eyes will open like you've never seen them before. Um, I worked with a couple of professionals years ago when we first did this, wonderful, dedicated, passionate professionals um, who reported to me. And for a while there, I thought they were really in a conspiracy to make me drink. Um, <laughs> what I found out after reading their strengths was I found out who they were, what drove them, what made them individuals. And all of a sudden, the three of us got along so much better and, and really upped our game to a new plateau. I, I, I was just thrilled with that. So the point, boy, if I hit this hard enough, treat every employee as an individual, leverage their personal strengths. Say, hey, I'm looking from this from you because I know you're the best at that on our team. Uh, it, boy, the, the, the payback is incredible. Rather than generalist, everybody can do everything. All right, we use it, and I, I mentioned there, and I'll, I'll just say quickly, you know, we reward it, we highlight it, we said, Helen used her strength as a, adaptable by shifting in the middle of the project and, and uh, uh, you know, going in a different direction, and that was wonderful. Uh, Bob used his empathy strength to relate to the customers and come up with a better communication plan. Um, we say that it's built into the folklore of the organization. You'll see it in evals, you'll see it in award write-ups. Any way in which you say they are an individual, uh, you'll, you'll get paid back. This dude, and isn't he cool, is Baltasar Castiglione. About 1,500 uh, in Italy, and of course Italy wasn't Italy at the time, it was a, a group of 100 little nation states uh, run by a, a, a prince, and it was the top of that hill to the river, was a, was a principality. Um, if you've seen the movie versions of Romeo and Juliet or Merchant of Venice, uh, Taming of the Shrew, any of those, they took place about that time in that Italy of the day. So you have a prince and you have a bunch of people wearing poofy, colorful pants. Um, and so that's Italy of the time. But, uh, Machiavelli wrote The Prince, the book, about that time on how to be a good leader. Uh, now, he was a little harsh. Um, I think he advocated chopping people's heads off at one point. Um, hopefully, we're not doing that too, too strictly now. Um, but at the same time, in the same area of the world, this guy Baltasar, he was a courtier. That is, I call him a department head. In a county government, he would be a department head. And he advised the prince on what to do. Now, they all had departments. Somebody had to be in charge of colorful, poofy pants. Um, somebody had to be in charge of carnival. Somebody had to be in charge of pasta. I don't know. But all the things that a municipality has to do, somebody had to be in charge of. And so he was a courtier in charge of an area of, of civil government. He wrote this book on how to, on, on the book of the courtier, or rather how to be a follower in 1516. I happened to trip over this in a book about how to be a good follower. And I loved it. I mentioned it to my wife. She said, oh my gosh, who is Baltasar Castiglione? I look up this painting. It's done by Raphael, the famous Renaissance painter. And she went out and took this quote, actually an extended quote, and that picture and made this thing that's framed on the wall of my office. Baltasar looks over me every day, and that's how important I find this quote in this concept. He says, and I apologize for reading, but I think it's important. I think the goal of the perfect courtier is to win for himself the favor and mind of the prince whom he serves. 
that he may be able to tell him and always will tell him the truth about everything he needs to know without fear or risk of displeasing him. And that when he sees the mind of the prince inclined to a wrong action, he may dare to oppose him so as to dissuade him of every evil intent and bring him to the path of virtue. Wow, people wrote so cool back then, didn't they? You don't see this in a text message or anything on Instagram, nothing that colorful. What was he getting at? If you're a department head, and by the department head, it may be running an agency for the county or the state, or it may mean I run establishment team two, and I have that department is eight professionals, and I report to the establishment manager. It doesn't matter. When you have this team, you have to be able to have a relationship with your boss so that you go to him or her in the appropriate time, place, and manner. Don't publicly embarrass them. Don't post on Facebook that they're an idiot. But maybe you go into their office and you say, boss, do you have five minutes for me? Can we close the door here? Because I think what you're about to do, that decision we discussed in the big meeting yesterday, I still have grave concerns about that. I'm worried about the impact on the budget, how it's going to look optics, how the union is going to react to it. I've got to have this. If you only have that relationship with your boss when things are going south, they will close the door on you. And they go, what are you, a complainer? Get out of my office. But if you have that relationship ahead of time, then when there's a problem and they're about to step in it, or they did yesterday and you need to walk, have them walk back a comment, you have that trust relationship and they will listen to you. Okay, great advice for a follower. I happen to be, as I said, in the honored position, I'm, I'm the director in, in my agency. And so why do I think Baltasar Castiglione is my hero? Because there is a lot of responsibility on the follower to affirmatively seek out that relationship with the boss. But I think there's much greater responsibility on the boss to have an environment in which the follower feels comfortable having that conversation. If you snap at them, if you say, I don't have time for this, if you say, I'm really, really busy, is it that important? Then they'll never bring you their concerns and you're gonna step in it and everyone will stand on the sidelines and watch. And you'll say, why didn't anybody tell me? You go, well, you never have time for us. So as a leader, you have to set up that environment where followers can approach you. That's heavy responsibility because everything you say, everything you do, everything you don't say, everything you don't do, they see, they analyze, and they make up their own stories about it. And you know that's true because you do it too. Don't, don't deny it, you do. So heavy, heavy responsibility on that. I'm gonna make a comment here of what I refer to as the fallacy of the open door policy. Every leader I've ever interviewed for a leadership position, when you say, what's your leadership philosophy or how do you approach leadership? Everybody says, I have an open door policy with my people. And I cringe and I grind my teeth when they say that. And if anybody is listening on this teletalk who's from my organization, write that down. Don't say that. <laughs> Word of the wise. Why do I have such a problem with the open door policy? Well, because remember, or just put yourself in your current position, how comfortable do you feel walking up the steps of that pyramid to get to the top where they commit human sacrifices? And that's where your boss's desk is, by the way, in my visual. 
and you say, boss, I have a question. I want to challenge you. How comfortable are you with that? Oh my gosh, you wouldn't do it if somebody threatened you. But if your boss regularly walks around, parks themselves on the corner of your desk and said, hey, is that a new picture of your kids? Is that current? Are they playing baseball? What are you doing this weekend? So we're working that new project. Do you have any ideas about how we might work that project better? What do you want to do in the upcoming year? You have those kind of conversations so that people share with you regularly all the time. And maybe they will come into your office if they're comfortable enough with you as an individual. But if you just say that the conversations occur in my office with a person at a position of attention after having saluted and clicked their heels in front of my desk, then no one will ever talk to you and you'll say, why aren't they following? So you can tell I'm passionate about that topic. Okay, we have a few minutes left to go. I'll, I'll uh, go because there's so much stuff to do here. And I hope you're, you're feeding Tim with all your questions as we go. Words I find helpful. I couldn't find any other way to phrase this. So it's kind of that drawer in your kitchen next to the cutlery drawer. This is where the potato masher and the rolling pin and the, the lime uh, grater and all those things go. This is words I find helpful. The first one is alignment. Is the policy or practice that's set by leadership from this day forward, we shall, is that what really happens at the street level? And if it isn't, why not? Do not, please, please, please say, those people aren't following. We need to discipline them or retrain them or something like that. Look, those people know how to do their job at the street level. If they aren't doing what you think is the proper policy, either you didn't include them in the planning process, and so they don't believe in this, or they don't understand it, or it doesn't work. And if they're just doing it differently and not telling you, that's your fault. I know that's harsh. It sounds mean. I don't mean to be, but I do. I do mean to be because as leaders, it's up to you to create that environment. So how do you achieve that organizational alignment? You involve people at the lowest level in ideas, not with veto power. No, 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 no. I don't mean that the first line worker gets to overrule the director. That's not the point. But as you develop projects and ideas and initiatives, you're soliciting their advice even if you say, thank you for your advice, and we're still going to do the disfavored option, at least they've been part of it. Explain why you're doing option B instead of option A. Include them in the process and you'll get better things. In the military, the generals set out goals. They say, I want to flag at the top of that hill. I want to bridge across that river. I want to move all of this humanitarian assistance to the poor people out in the middle of the country. Generals do that, and then they go off and play golf or something. Colonels and majors write the plans. Here's how we're going to do it. If they're smart colonels, they're asking sergeants, so sergeant, what do you think? What's the best way to achieve this? Because the one inescapable truth of this military planning process is that the first person to know whether the plan is a good one or a bad one is the private that Marine Lance Corporal, the person who's out front and executing the plan is the first one who's gonna know whether it's gonna work or not. If you have not asked them their input before, you're gonna miss massive opportunities to improve your plan. And once you go live on Monday morning at 07, you better be asking them through their chain of command, through their supervisors, hey, soups, be walking the floor, ask what works, ask what doesn't. 
How are we going to do this? Do we need to tune it? Do stand-up meetings every morning at you know at eight o'clock? Um, if you're not asking the privates, you will fail. And by that, you can be more sure that when leadership has a policy, that it is followed at the street level, and you've got a better environment. Environment brings me to my next word. What is the overall leadership philosophy of your organization? Does everybody know what it is, first of all, and does everybody agree? Is it words on a strategic plan or do people really do it? Look for examples of those things. Listen to the folklore. What stories are being told around the water cooler or in awards write-ups? Ask people, just walk around and say, hey, what's our, our organization's leadership philosophy? Look in the mirror. This is a big one for me. I'm a learner, so I have to watch everything that everybody's doing. I read the newspaper or six newspapers every morning before I get going. Um, and I see all these things, whether it's politicians, heads of business, athletes, celebrities, doing what they do, sometimes making mistakes, sometimes doing things I admire. But I like to look at them, take a couple of lessons from it, and then hold up the mirror. If it was a mistake, is my organization at risk of making the same mistake? What controls do I have to make sure that that mistake doesn't happen? Very quickly, I'll talk about Fort Lee, New Jersey. In Fort Lee, New Jersey, in 2013, uh, the governor was running for re-election, and the mayor of Fort Lee belonged to a different political party, and he did not endorse the gubernatorial candidate. So the staff from the governor, from the chief of staff down to some operatives, said, we're going to mess up the traffic in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And they closed some bridge ramp off uh, on ramps. Horrible things. Ambulances couldn't get through the traffic jams. Police calls were delayed. People died. It was a horrible, horrible mess. And finally, uh, there were some criminal prosecutions. And the deputy chief or the chief of staff and a couple of the deputies went to jail for it, uh, for, for messing with these people. The governor said, I had no idea that was happening. I'm as shocked as you are. Now, what you believe on that, the facts of that, whether the governor really knew or personally authorized or directed this activity, I don't know. No one will ever know. And I don't care. What I do know is that the people closest to that leader believed that playing a political dirty trick on a political opponent and making people hurt from that would be acceptable to that leader, even if he or she never knew about it. That's the way my leader wants the game played. Oh my goodness, what a horrible thing. What a terrible environment. Are you in part of an organization where you say, let's cheat the federal stats a little by, and you come up with this plan. We're gonna close cases that don't really have a federal closing code here. What does that look like? If someone in the group said, oh my gosh, our boss, whether it's a supervisor or the agency director or the state director, would never, ever countenance such awful behavior. We cannot possibly do that. This is a virtuous play-by-the-rules organization. Or would they say, well, if we can get a full point of performance out of it, then it'll be worth it. Ask yourself that question. And if it's not clear as a bell the way you want it, then you haven't been clear enough about communicating your values. The last point I'll make is everybody, every time I've taught this class, and I've taught it with, with um, uh, a number of people, I've done, taught it alone, somebody comes up to me afterward, and there's probably a chatbot question in here. What you say is nice, Steve, but you don't know my boss. Yeah, I know, I don't. Um, all I can say to that is affect the part of the world you can affect. 
If you only have control over a six-person team, then apply your chosen success and leadership philosophies among those six people. And hopefully your successes will spread and enlightened people will look at you and say, wow, how did you achieve that? Um, your boss may say unenlightened and uh, difficult, but don't be dissuaded, don't be put down by that. Be true to yourself, serve your troops, take care of your troops and they will take care of you. Great, thanks Stephen. We've got a couple of questions that have come in. Um, let me shoot a couple of them over to your way. Uh, one of them says, in light of COVID-19, how do we define or how do you define short-term and long-term goals? Boy, the short-term goal that I like is reassurance is probably my biggest word. That's both for staff and for customers. We're here, we're uh, hampered a little bit, but you're gonna be okay. Uh, I, I think that's what most people are looking for these days and not getting enough of it <laughs> from, from the television and the politicians. So that's been my short-term goal, that there are some things that are changing, but the bulk of what we do, why we do it, and how we do it has not changed. Great. There's another one kind of related to um, COVID-19 as well. The person says, during this time of COVID-19 and teleworking, it seems that it's easy for management or top leaders to slip back into coercive or to that a third, uh, boy, can't even say it. Uh, can you speak to how to avoid these with the challenges of remote working? Yeah, this is, it's a great question. Watch the politicians around the country um, because there's a wonderful variety. Some are enjoying taking over their executive police powers and issuing edicts and stay at home and threatening people with arrest. Other people are saying, hey, make your own decisions. Uh, I'm here as a resource if you need me. Watch those people and then look at yourself, hold up the mirror and see which ones do you like and not like. If you're making teleworkers log in on Zoom at 08, 11.59, uh, 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. to make sure that they're in their office and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, how would you like that? Uh, that's a problem. So yeah, respect for the individual while maintaining accountability. My office is concerned about that as we go 30 days in, if we go to 60 days in, we're gonna to have to make sure that all of those IRS publication 1075 rules are being strictly followed. Um, you don't get to say COVID exception on your audit. So we're going to have to build in that accountability without becoming tyrants. Yeah, good, good answer. Uh, here's another question that's come in. Uh, when you talked about leader priorities, you said that 40% of your time should be spent on leader development. What can you do when you have an employee that really exhibits leadership with peers, but doesn't want to take the next formal step, say to promote up or to become a team lead, those kind of things? You know, everything is timing. I am ready for grandchildren. Uh, my married son is not. Um, it's so frustrating to me um, that I'm trying to lead him to become a parent so that I can have grandchildren, and yet he's not there yet. That's not a tangent. <laughs> it's intended to be on point. Some people are ready when they're ready. They may not go at the same pace you do. You have coworkers who went to college at 45 uh, because life was just in a different order of priorities for them. Um, and that's all okay. All you can do is be ready for all of your employees for when they are ready, they know they can come to you and you'll support them in their success journey. So you can't push them, uh, that won't work out. Thanks, Stephen. There's one more that's come in here. 
they say, can you share what is the overall leadership philosophy uh, kind of summed up in Orange County's work culture? Yeah, you know, we, we came up with this. We were working with customers and we were working in different meetings about how employee engagement, staff engagement. And it was kind of funny because the two messages in, inadvertently merged. And the messages in each of those work groups were, we need to help people grow. And that meant customers, yeah, I want them to grow as better parents, as better able to support their children, regardless of their role or gender. But we also want employees to grow. And that may mean being the most technically proficient person in that classification, and they stay there for 20 years, or it may mean promoting or becoming an analyst instead of a leader or something like that. But help someone grow became the leadership philosophy for the organization. And when people say, do you mean staff or customers? The answer is yes. So uh, you write that down. That's an Orange County thing. Help someone grow. And the point is, every day when you come into the office, you help either a customer or a peer or a subordinate or your boss grow. I tell you, I welcome that from anybody in the organization. People come up to me all the time and say, Steve, can I help you? <laughs> do you want to do this better, know this better? And, and I like, I welcome it. Well, Stephen, that's all the questions we have that have come up. Uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time today to share with us your perspectives and your insights on leadership styles for positive outcomes. And I want to thank you for what you're doing in your community of Orange County and also for what you do for NCS. So, Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Tim. And with that, I'll turn this back over to Gillian. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Steve. We uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share with the NCA community. Thanks again to Tim Leitner and to Steve Eldred for that great conversation. And thanks to all the people at NCIA for allowing us to use the web talk for our podcast today. On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcast. We have a lot of great things on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our episodes. We also appreciate your ratings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. On Location is a production of the INSEA Communications Committee with support from committee co-chairs Robbie Endress and Judith Green with special help from the podcast subcommittee chair, Tim Leitner. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Joe Mamlin, and this has been On Location.